or you're late back. And as a result, if you miss lunch, it's your fault. Um, but I probably will overrun slightly, so I hope the panel's discussion can start about 12. Um, in the introduction, you heard that I'm neither a lawyer nor a prosecutor, and hence what I'm about to say is very much from a layman's point of view. Uh, but luckily, we do have uh, Jeremy here, who will put me right. And if he doesn't, no doubt Colin Nichols will um, put me right after that. Um, the title to the talk, Do Civil Settlements Deter Bribe Paying? Um, well, the, ob the obvious answer is, well, of course they do, if the, if the fine is sufficiently large and the chances of getting caught are more than remote. Um, but that's not the issue. Um, the real issue is how best to use civil settlements in the fight against corruption. And to answer this question, there needs to be a good understanding of the applicable law and practice. Identifying any apparent shortcomings in law and associated procedures is one thing, and coming to solutions is quite another. Now, Lord Falconer mentioned earlier on um, that the UK were looking to the US practice, which seems to be working. Well, what are those lessons? Um, are they working? How can we actually implement within the current UK law and practice? Um, and is it possible? Well, they're all sort of difficult questions, actually. Um, and they're the sort of questions that our UK prosecutors are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, what I'm about to say may seem to be somewhat critical of our prosecutors, but that is not my aim. Um, I'm a great supporter of the, the SFO, worked there for three years, um, and I still actually support the work that they undertake. But the way in which some civil settlements have been recently dealt with does draw some concern. And Probably it's a concern that they may share as well. So why do TI have a, an interest in this subject? And what's happened next, I don't know. Oh, jolly good. Um, well, <coughs> TI got involved largely because of the increase in the investigation and prosecution of foreign bribery cases notably Halliburton, Siemens, and British Aerospace. All of these cases were prosecuted in the US, uh, where there is a growing trend to use deferred prosecution agreements. I'll just touch upon these quickly. Um, under the schemes, an agreement is reached between the corporation and the DOJ on the offences, and the resultant charges are laid before the court. Important point. However, the cases then stayed for a agreed period of time, during which period the company will undertake whatever actions are set out in the agreement. This will obviously include the payment of a large fine, uh, but it may also include the appointment of a monitor, um, and also almost inevitably include an agreement to provide full cooperation in subsequent, in subsequent um, investigations, including possible prosecutions of other persons. If the company abides by the criminal prosecution, and all that involves, including possible debarment for public contracts. <coughs> if the company fails to comply, the prosecutor can proceed with the criminal case, based, based on the fact that it has the added benefit of an agreed statement of facts. <coughs> These are some of those cases. Now, TI carried out some research into these cases, partly to assess the adequacy of the settlements. Some of the issues arising include the basis of the fine and their relationship to the bribes or benefit gained, as you can see, the appointment of monitors, the nature of the criminal charge, possible debarment from public contracts, 
and a prosecution of individuals. You'll see that the fines are very substantial, but are they large enough to act as a deterrent? You will see that the ratio between the global fines and the alleged bribe payments would suggest not. There are, of course, other considerations, including the potential for debarment, which could have a major impact on the future profitability of such corporations. In the majority of cases, debarment was avoided. This seems to become a non-negotiable point in reaching settlements with large corporations. A look at the share price movements of Halliburton and BAE doesn't appear to reflect any concerns by the market that companies could have been debarred. Are these companies too big and important to the economies of the countries concerned to bar them from public contracts for a period of time? Is there one law for smaller concerns and another for multinationals? Do the settlement agreements reflect <coughs> the difficulties faced by prosecutors with limited resources when they cross swords with powerful commercial entities? Does the criminal law and procedure unduly favour defendants in such cases? <coughs> the courts favour settlements. They too are under enormous resource pressure and any contested criminal trial on corruption charges would undoubtedly be lengthy, complex and expensive. On the other hand, a criminal trial in conviction is the ultimate deterrent, provides for justice to be done and seen to be done. Now TI supports settlements in appropriate cases and has published guiding principles which all appear on the TI website. These principles are quite broad in nature and it needs to be recognised that different legal systems will dictate any settlement process. However, the TI recommendations do usefully set out some underlying principles. One, all settlements should be subject to judicial scrutiny. Prosecution should be the norm. There should be cooperation between states to facilitate prosecutions in other countries. And companies should commit to compliance programmes. Well, let's just turn to the UK landscape. <coughs> Following the approach used in the investigation and prosecution of corporate corruption cases by the DOJ under the FCPA, there's been an increasing trend for prosecuting agencies to use some form of plea negotiations in the UK. The lead agency is the SFO, although some cases have been dealt with specialist anti-corruption units within police and the FSA, strangely. However, it was the settlement in Innerspec, the first global settlement to hit the UK criminal courts, which highlighted features of the multi-jurisdictional settlements, which give rise to significant public interest issues. In particular, the settlement of a case prior to charge and formal transfer to a Crown Court has a number of connected consequences which lead to a less visible and accountable outcome in the public domain. In addition, the use of civil powers to settle, to settle criminal cases permits, as happened in the early case of Balfour Beatty, tend not to foster transparency. The use of civil powers to settle criminal cases only highlights the perception that there is a gap in the architecture available within the criminal justice system and to be seen to be settled corruption cases in the interest of justice. Now this modernisation of law by the passing of the Bribery Act, hopefully come this April, is welcomed and the revised law should facilitate prosecutions of corporates. 
The real prospect of a criminal trial should also encourage companies to improve their anti-bribery policies and processes and self-report to the SFO in order to reach civil settlements. But a self-reporting regime, if it's to work, it must operate within the judicial framework that weighs the public interest in seeing justice be done and the need for consistency approach so that corporates can assess with a degree of certainty the outcome of the criminal process. Deciding how best to deal with criminal investigations, suspect companies will want to weigh with some certainty the likely stance of the prosecutor and the courts against the likely impact on the company's commercial interests and the position of its directors or other individuals who may be facing charges. The current procedural framework does not provide the degree of certainty sought after by companies. There are no sentencing guidelines dealing specifically with overseas corruption cases. The SFO has issued guidance on self-reporting and its likely approach to settling cases under civil law. But the courts, particularly in the Innospec case, have criticised this approach. The SFO operates in accordance with the Code for Crown Prosecutors and in appropriate cases can undertake plea negotiations in line with the attorney guidance that were issued in 2009. However, it appears that there remains a substantial level of uncertainty as to how prosecutors and the courts will deal with overseas corruption cases. Will the new Bribery Act blow away some of these concerns? Unlikely. The Act will provide prosecutors with an easier route to charge companies, as I've said, for failing to stop bribe paying under the Section 7 and strengthen their hand in plea negotiations but the limitations on UK law and practice remain. So what is this framework that I've been talking about? <coughs> well, under UK law, there's always been a means for defendants to agree to a plea of guilty with a prosecutor, which will give rise to reduced sentence. However, early pleas are rare in complex fraud cases, where the defence are more likely to want to assess the prosecution case statement, <coughs> obtain full disclosure of the evidence, which I can tell you takes some time. Um, I can see Satnam sitting back there from the SFO, which you obviously agree with that point, um, <coughs> including unused material, and consider their options before offering a plea. This is not the case in the US, where it is possible to bring charges at a much earlier stage. In the complex fraud area, <coughs> there have been particular initiatives to put dealings with potential defendants who wish to plead at an early stage onto a more formal footing and to standardise or formalise dealings with defence solicitors. This led to the introduction of the Attorney General guidelines for plea discussions in cases of serious or complex fraud, which took effect from uh, 18th of March 2009. Turning to this case of Goodyear, it is expected that defendants would like to get an early indication of sentence from the courts, but this has not been easy. Sentencing remains the sole responsibility of the courts and it is important that judiciary remain independent of prosecution agencies. There is no guarantee that the views of the prosecutor on possible sentencing for cooperation will prevail. Before the case of R. V. Goodyear, there was no formal way that a defendant could get an indication of his likely sentence in open court. Post-Goodyear, the defence may apply for a hearing to seek an indication of sentence but only after the base of the plea has been agreed with the prosecution. 
Now, the case of Goodyear made it clear that the judiciary were not to be drawn into some form of plea bargaining. You can see from the quote on the slide. And this remains the case. So while a Goodyear hearing may be useful to a defendant to obtain indication of sentence, it is unlikely to be a particularly helpful procedure in trying to reach plea negotiations in corruption cases. Turning to um, immunity, in some complex cases it may suit the prosecutor to offer immunity to suspects in return for cooperation. The statutory basis for offering immunity was introduced under SOCPA 2005. Under Section 71, a prosecutor can grant a person conditional immunity from prosecution. Under Section 73, <coughs> the prosecutor is empowered to enter written agreements with suspects and defendants with provision of evidence and other forms of assistance. In recognition for providing such assistance, the courts can reduce the sentence <coughs> in accordance with guidelines issued by the Sentencing Council. Under this regime, the prosecutor is required to bring to the court's attention any statements from the victims, any aggravating or mitigating factors, any other statutory provisions or other cases that might be relevant. In light of all of these factors, the prosecutor may offer assistance to the judge by making a submission as the appropriate sentencing range. This procedure has been used by the SFO, e.g. in the case of Mr Dougal, um, who did get a reduced sentence for cooperation. Turning to the AG guidelines for plea negotiations, uh, prosecutors have always had the power to accept pleas to lesser charges, but they must have regard to the Code for Crown Prosecutors, which in essence applies two tests, the evidential test and a public interest test. The base of the plea should be agreed by the parties in writing and be subject to approval of the judge. As the title suggests, the AG guidelines are restricted to cases of serious or complex fraud. Such cases do include corruption cases. It is clear that these guidelines were introduced with a specific intent of encouraging early pleas with guilt and avoiding unnecessary expense, both in terms of legal aid and court time. The AG guidelines re reflect some of the concerns of the judiciary about the dangers associated with an early plea. Um, the Code of Crown Prosecutors was issued in February, or revised one was issued in February 2010. This states that, in the vast majority of cases, prosecutors should only decide whether to prosecute after the investigation has been completed and after all available evidence has been reviewed. It follows that in plea negotiations, the prosecutor should be in possession of all the relevant evidence in order to decide on the basis of charge. In practice, this appears to be the aim. The prosecutor should only conclude plea discussions prior to completing their investigations. Now, the general principles underpinning the AG's guidelines um, are set out on that slide. And you can see there that the, <coughs> the overriding aim is that the, the prosecutor must not agree to a reduced base of plea, which is misleading, untrue, or illogical. And you'll also see that some of the underlying principles include that they must ensure the plea agreement placed before the court fully and fairly reflects all matters agreed.
But the key change that, brought, that was brought about by these guidelines is that the plea discussions take place pre-charge. The parties should discuss the appropriate sentence with a view to presenting a joint written submission to the court. This submission should list the aggravating mitigating factors arising from the agreed facts, set out any personal mitigation, and refer to any relevant sentencing guidelines or authorities. Further, in the light of all these factors, the prosecutor should make submissions as to the applicable sentencing range. The prosecutor must ensure that submissions are realistic, take full account of all the relevant material and considerations. Now, the AG guidelines also set out some key considerations which include that the judge must receive sufficient background <coughs> to the plea agreement and case to enable him to assess whether the plea agreement is fair and in the interests of justice. <coughs> Secondly, you can see that prosecutors should bear in mind all the powers of the court and seek to include in a joint submission any relevant ancillary orders, particularly those which are going to achieve redress for the victims. And of course, the asset recovery powers that they may use <coughs> are particularly directed as a deterrent to the others. Now turning quickly to sentencing policy, uh, there has been criticism of light sentences of persons found guilty of fraud charges in the UK. Um, this also applies to corruption and associated fines. Some commentators point to the comparatively prescriptive sentencing policy in the US, which provides much clearer basis for predicting custodial sentences and fines. It is argued that the, in the US system facilitates plea bargaining at a much earlier stage. Now this issue was commented upon by a working group chaired by the right <coughs> on Lord Justice Gage that was looking at the possibility of adopting a structured sensing framework akin to the US model. It concluded, which I think is quite important, that the US grid model increases consistency and predictability of sentences, but the cost of inflexibility that makes them unsuitable and unacceptable in England and Wales. So despite what Lord Faulkner said earlier on, it doesn't sound as though we're going to go across to a US model just yet. I'll turn to the uh, SFO self-reporting guidelines. Now you can see under this, the, uh, the SFO are clearly trying to persuade companies to self-report. Um, and of course, all companies will wish to avoid a criminal trial, if at all possible. Now, the SFO adopted a policy of promoting the practice of self-reporting and has published their approach. Now, the guidelines also set out the circumstances that are likely to define what are appropriate cases. Part of which is, is the board genuinely committed to resolving the issue of moving to a better corporate culture? Does the corporate understand that any resolution must satisfy public interest and must be transparent? 
Now, the SFO acknowledges that corporates will want to know whether the SFO would be looking for a criminal or civil outcome. Their response is, without knowing the facts, no prosecutor can ever give an unconditional guarantee that it will not be a prosecution of a corporate. Nevertheless, we want to settle self-referral cases that satisfy the circumstances set out in their guidelines. An exception to this would be if board members of the corporate had engaged personally in corrupt activities. Again, it goes back to what Lord Falkland is saying. The prosecutors have set out that they would proceed against those individuals if there's sufficient evidence. But this seems to indicate that it would be at a fairly high level. Now, should the SFO decide to proceed with civil recovery as against a criminal prosecution, it does so using civil recovery orders under the Proceeds of Crime Act. These provide for the recovery of property that was obtained through unlawful conduct. It is not a requirement to first obtain a criminal conviction. The AG has also issued guidelines for prosecutors covering the use of these powers. And whereas it is stated that the reduction of crime is in general best secured by means of a criminal, criminal investigation and criminal proceedings, it is acknowledged that non-conviction-based asset recovery powers can make an important contribution where it is not feasible to secure a conviction. So the prosecutors have not got a choice between which way to go. If the evidence is there and it meets their, the, <coughs> the code for Crown prosecutors, they should go for a criminal, um, criminal trial. And if it's not feasible to secure a conviction, maybe the civil route is the way to go. Well, that is the basic framework. Well, how's it been working? I've got another 10 minutes, so I better hurry along. I've told you I'm going to cut into your time. So very, very quickly, <laughs> very quickly, these, <coughs> these are some of the cases. Um, and I will just, I was going to um, talk about Balfour Beatty, uh, Mabin Johnson, but I won't do so. I will go straight to Innerspec. Now, in March 2010, Innerspec pleaded guilty to making corrupt payments to public officials, the government of Indonesia, to secure, secure contracts with supply of a fuel called TEL. Innerspec was a wholly owned subsidiary of a US company, uh, which had been subject to an investigation by the US DOJ. Now, the SFO investigation followed. Now, the judgment in this case was important because of the comments made by Lord Justice Thomas on the respective role of the prosecuting agencies and the judiciary on settlement negotiations. Um, the independent directors of Innospect had cooperated with the DOJ and agreed to plead guilty to criminal offences. The SFO and DOJ agreed that the fines and penalties that could be imposed on Innospect might exceed 400 million in the US and 150 million in the UK. These sums vastly exceeded Innerspec's ability to pay, hence the agreement for Innerspec to pay 25.8 in cash and a further 14.4 million <coughs> in <coughs> payments um, to be agreed. Now, what were these issues that were raised by Lord Justice Thomas? Number one, it was not for the prosecutor to agree a penalty. That was the court to decide. The prosecutor should set out a range of proposals as set out in the relevant authorities and not a specific proposal. Secondly, 
It is in the public interest that a court must rigorously scrutinise in open court, in the interest of transparency and good governance, the basis of that plea to see whether it reflects public interest. Three, corruption is at the top end of serious corporate offending, both in terms of culpability and harm. Penalties should reflect the serious level of criminality. He said that although there may be reasons to differentiate the custodial pen penalties imposed for corruption between the US and England and Wales, no one was able to suggest any reason for differentiating in financial penalties. Four, in this case the benefits are not restricted to the profits made on the contracts, but the very contracts themselves could be as high as $160 million. He accepted that it was a place for civil order, for a civil order, for example, compensation in addition to a fine, but felt that that also should be heard in conjunction with the criminal trial. BAE, very quickly. Um, most people here know the, the facts of BAE, so I won't go through it all. Um, now, some of the, some of the, the issues that um, came out of the, the settlement agreement <coughs> included that there was an ex-gratia payment by the company of £30 million, less any financial orders imposed by the court, for the benefit of people of Tanzania in a manner to be agreed between the SFO and the company. Now, the price of the contract in this case was at the heart of the case, was for almost $40 million. The company had clearly secured itself for a remarkably cheap deal. And moreover, the judge related point out made sure that it would not face any fine of any size worth mentioning, since no judge would diminish the sum destined for the benefit of the people of, the, of a very poor country. The judge said in the sentencing, the structure of the settlement places moral pressure on the court to keep the fine to a minimum so that reparation is kept to a maximum. Second, the SFO would not prosecute any person in relation to conduct other than conduct connected to the Czech Republic or Hungary. By that time, those investigations were redundant. Um, they were settled by the US. It brings into question a whole issue about possibility of arguments of double jeopardy. <coughs> The SFO also said there was no further investigations or prosecutions of any member of the BAE Systems Group for the conduct preceding the 5th of February 2010. Um, that particular issue is being challenged with, with the SFO by CAT at the moment. Now the judge described the agreement as loosely and perhaps hastily drafted. Um, he said, it is relatively common for a prosecuting authority to agree not to prosecute a defendant in respect of specified crimes which are, not, which are admitted and listed in the agreement, but I'm surprised to find the prosecutor granting a blanket indemnity for all offences. I, I won't go on any more on BAE, um, as it will probably come out in the panel discussions. So what are we left with? Jeremy's ever so happy that I'll flip through that very quickly. Um, emerging issues. One, generally speaking, the role of the judiciary in plea agreements. Um, at the moment, they enter them fairly late on. Everyone would like to get them earlier on, but there is this issue about the independence of the judiciary and the investigators, and it's extremely difficult to engage the judiciary at an early enough <coughs> stage. Secondly, transparency. 
putting a case through the criminal courts does allow you to see is more transparent. You actually do learn more about the case. And although, of course, going through the criminal courts, it does, it does <laughs> allow um, commentators perhaps to criticise some of the prosecutors um, because all the facts are, are laid bare. Um, it, it is at least transparent. Um, arguably, the civil settlements um, that go through POCA, they are not as transparent. So we would urge um, the SFO and other prosecutors to ensure that where they reach those settlements, they make them far more transparent in terms of what the terms are. Civil settlements generally, there is, there is still a great question mark over the basis upon which pleas are agreed, a basis upon which fines are calculated. If you went through all of the UK cases at the moment, um, it is, remains a mystery how you would actually set the fines as they did. So greater clarity on that. I don't personally think that the, um, the law under POCA, which was actually set up um, to tackle uh, serious organised crime and to remove the benefits of that crime from those criminals, is suitable for overseas corruption cases. Um, the, the US model does have its benefits, but as I said earlier on, it is not a system um, which is likely to come into the UK very shortly. Having said that, the Sentencing Council should certainly issue some, <coughs> some guidance, perhaps, um, as to the basis upon which um, fines should be levied. The prosecution of individuals, <coughs> that should, con should continue with vigour. There have been some individuals prosecuted, but in the big cases where you've actually got big corporates involved, of course they want to avoid prosecution of their people. And at the moment, the UK doesn't have a particularly good track record um, in that regard. Um, there was the, the one case where um, we did get a, they did get a uh, prosecution recently <coughs> where the chap received a suspended sentence. Deferred prosecutions, a really, really good tool in the US, um, but it doesn't apply in the UK. Is there some way that we can introduce some sort of system where you could actually get companies to admit to their actions um, and try to get them to um, put in place procedures or agreements that they're going to do certain things and if they don't go back to uh, some agreed statement of facts, well at the moment that doesn't exist. The appointment of monitors, there's a big question over that in the States as well. Um, there should be greater clarity on why a monitor is being appointed, what the agreement with the monitor is, what are they supposed to be achieving, um, what are their aims? All of that should be tr more transparent. Cooperation with other countries is another issue and for another day. Um, but with that, Jeremy, I will finish. <laughs> <laughs>